the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show today on the Science Inside. It's a world first from SA researchers, but maybe not the most glorious invention at first glance or first smell. Researchers have made bricks from, you might have heard of this, human urine. Yes, people, bricks from human urine. Uh, It's a biological process using bacteria and most importantly is waste free. You may not want to think about your pee very often, but um, apart from the 95% water, there are some very important chemicals in your urine. There's urea, chloride, sodium, potassium, and a bunch of other things that are actually really valuable as chemicals. So we had a chance to go down to Cape Town last week to talk to the scientists behind this urine bio brick and look, take a little look into their labs where it all happens happens so that is on the show later today then in unscience we find out the mathematical formula for the perfect pizza how cool is that you will definitely want to hear about that and then later in the show since biobricks are so waste free and sustainable we took a look at something that the mother city is doing which as far as i know no one in Joburg has quite caught onto yet they're called naked stores but it has nothing to do with nudity it has to do with plastic free no package no packaging in on your shopping so you buy things as is usually with your own packaging so we went to a couple and talked to the owners of nude foods including shop zero to figure out how it all works and a little bit of the science behind it all of that is coming up on the show today but as always we kick it off with some science news you can catch us on social media i would love to know what you think of the idea of bricks made out of urine do you have any questions about that also the perfect pizza do you want to guess what kind of mathematical formula what the the secret sauce is if i may make that pun also you can catch us on facebook and twitter as vow fm it's also uh, our show is up on iTunes and on our uh, podcast website, vids.journalism.coza forward slash science. You can WhatsApp us on 084078-4912. But before anything else, let's get into the news. This week's Science Headline. As always, I'm here with my producer, Bridget LePere. How are you doing, Bridget? I'm good. And yourself, Elna? Good. So let's get into the science news. What do you have for us? Well, today we are going to be talking about mobile devices and how they could soon be used to aid people in developing countries to know their HIV status. Okay. Yes. Uh, so a, a, a portable diagnostic tool which uses cell phones and tech and nanotechnology has been designed to aid people in developing countries where access to healthcare and resources are scarce. Specifically, we are talking about tools used for detecting HIV and managing this disease. So this tool essentially just makes uh, the testing easier, accessible and affordable. Okay, affordable is a very big thing here because there are many people in the country who need to check their HIV status and maybe they don't have a lot of money for this. I know some clinics offer it for free, so I'd like to know how how affordable is affordable. 
Well, um, the materials for making this de- de- device uh, cost less than $5, which is about 72 rands. Uh, and you can find the ELISA rapid test at pharmacies already here in South Africa. So if you go to local pharmacies, you may find it for 60 rands or even less, and in some places for free. But um, this device is not a disposable device, right? The new one that you're talking yes, about. Yes, this specific uh, device that I'm talking about, um, it's 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 it can be used for testing the the for the virus and also you can use it to manage or monitor the the transcri- the progression of the disease okay that's good but you did mention nanotechnology that sounds quite intriguing how is it being used in this uh, mobile device well, it's quite, you know, it gets technical and quite um, complicated, but um, I try to explain it here. Essentially, the device uh, detects, detects ribonucleic acid, uh, which is RNA, mm-hmm. which is a high compound find, found in proteins of all living cells. And from a single drop of blood, the device is able to pick up high amounts of HIV RNA. So the cell phone system is basically a... Um, the cell phone itself, a microchip, 3D-like scanner and nanotechnology. Okay. Yes. So what this 3D scanner, uh, which can be mounted on the on the cell phone, it's just used to visualize and track the motion of micromotors in the disease and it is slightly modified with an optical attachment and a cell phone application on a single channel microfluidic acid. So this microchip also is used to test the, the motion of the motors and the cell phone application records videos of samples. It enumerates uh, the motors, automatically calculates the velocity of the motors and reports the results in less than a minute. So essentially that's what the cell phone comes into play. That's the role of the cell phone. It's used to calculate all of these things, but there's quite a number of things which help the cell phone to put the results together. Mm. So, as you said before, we already have access to the ELISA test and there's lab tests, of course. How is this one different? Well, the exciting thing about nanotechnology is that the micro or the nanoparticles can be manipulated into various shapes. So um, it is customized to fit various testing apparatus, like if you want to test for HIV or do you want to test for TB and things like that. So it enables them to choose using catalytic, catalytic, magnetic or auditory forces to power the motion of these um, nanoparticles. So catalytically powered motors are usually designed designed to draw out specific catalytic um, reaction of these nanoparticles, either through using enzymes or charged metals such as platinum, copper, iron, etc. And in comparison to the fluorescent-based sensing, which can be found in the ELISA test as well. The um, catalytic motion-based optical sensing does not require the large optical components or expensive equipment, which usually comes with the fluorescent-based investigating of this disease. Mm. So it also allows rapid testing as uh, opposed to the conventional nucleic and detection methods used by uh, PCR or um, uh, polymerase chain reaction and enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay or the ELISA test. 
Okay, so it's great that it makes this all simpler, but how accurate and reliable is it? Well, the, de- the detection, detection precision was evaluated specifically uh, for specific specificities. Spef- I'm getting my words all twisted up for specificity and sensitivity. And they found that it had a 94.6 sensitivity rate at clinically relevant threshold and that it allowed 99.1 of HIV specifically specificity uh, detection within an hour. So that's what I was talking about where, you know, they are able to monitor the progression or the rate of which uh, the HIV spreading. So uh, Dr. Shafi said that uh, because the test is so quick, critical decisions about the next medical step could uh, make... Uh, 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 um, you know, um, checking the progression of the of the illness or what kind of medication is needed for the patient on the spot without ha- them having to wait for test results to come from the lab or things like that. Mm. This does sound like a very interesting progression, but I would want to know what kind of support services are around um, around this, including HIV counselling, making sure that somebody who has their results knows all of the options of treating the virus, treating the disease and other diseases linked to it as great as at home testing is you want to make sure that all of the support services are in place true very interesting Bridget um on my side today for the news something slightly light and I have to ask you how are you on the front when it comes to sleeping well are you one of those that's just out I'm not hey I I do manage my sleep properly, but I'm a very light sleeper, I have to say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You see, you and I, we'd be a terrible match because I I can sleep through anything. I have no problems. (laughs) But you know what? Sleep deprivation, we've all felt it. It feels terrible, right? Not getting enough sleep. And I always feel the whole day as if something's a little bit missing, right? So... There's quite a few medical conditions that have sleep deprivation as a symptom. Mm -hmm. And one of them is anxiety disorders. So we know that if you have an anxiety disorder, you may really struggle to sleep. Yes. But a new study that just came out showed that the opposite is in fact also true. So sleep researchers Etty Ben-Simon and Matthew Walker from the University of California in Berkeley just released a paper titled underslept and overanxious the neural correlates of sleep loss induced anxiety in the human brain basically meaning they are looking not just at anxiety disorders and sleep but sleep causing anxiety basically they looked at 18 healthy people which i've got to say is a relatively small group but okay and they either had them sleep through the night or stay up um so all of them after each other and then they made them take anxiety tests throughout the process to see how anxious they were. And I've got to repeat, these were healthy people, not people with anxiety issues at all. Hmm. So it, 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 you know, it, it does make sense. But I can also imagine, you know, like I become groggy and I'm like a zombie when I haven't slept. And um, 
I, I, I can imagine that people can become anxious after not having slept after mm. long hours. Yeah, I think we've all spoken to somebody and thought like, you're they're tense and afterwards you realize they're just tired. Yeah. <laughs> so in fact, the correlation I think all of us can relate to in an anecdotal emotional way, but the results were still quite shocking because their anxiety levels on the tests were not just a little bit higher, but as high as 30% higher than normal, meaning that they were reaching the levels of someone with a diagnosed anxiety disorder, these healthy people, after not having slept for 24 hours. Beyond that, their brain activity was different when sleep-deprived. The researchers showed them emotional videos throughout the process, and they reacted more emotionally um, reactive than normal. Basically, what this means is that the part of your brain that normally would be in control of easing your anxious thoughts and your emotional responses is a lot weaker in terms of that control when it's tired. Well, I definitely get that. Yeah. Makes sense, It right? does make a lot of sense. So the importance here is not just to prove something that we've all kind of instinctively felt, but that sleep deprivation or trouble with sleeping isn't just a symptom of anxiety, but significantly contributes to it. It means that if you're experiencing, and they call this casual anxiety, so not an anxiety disorder, even though I would never call anxiety casual, but if you're experiencing it, there may this actually may be because of your sleep patterns, not just because of other things in your life or actual um, anxious thoughts. And conversely, the other way around, it also means that the treatment of anxiety disorders could be strengthened by a stronger focus on sleep and not just as a symptom, but as a form of improving the anxiety overall. Because now, currently, we look at people with anxiety disorders and we say, oh, you can't sleep. Mm -hmm. But instead, looking at that and saying, huh, you not sleeping actually makes your anxiety worse, worse. And, and may be one of, one of the contributing factors. So I think whether you have an anxiety disorder or not, this is something very applicable to all of us because especially if we haven't slept, say, um, before a big test because it is exam season and you're feeling really fragile, science is backing you. I wish they could back me up as well. <laughs> I also have a problem. Like if I go to a new place, I'm unable to sleep for at least the first or the second night. Mm. I was re on a different note. I was re reading some interesting research about that recently, about how that's a, um, a primal reaction to your body not being safe uh, from predators. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe you're just more in touch with your lioness side. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Elna. <laughs> <laughs> that was our science inside news after the break. Can your pee build a house? Yes, it can. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. The invention that we're talking about today on the show is so important in the light of sustainability and all of us trying to live a more eco-friendly lifestyle. Maybe you've given up plastic straws or you bring your own little bag to the grocery store. All of it makes a difference, but scientists are always working on something new that is more um, sustainable, has less waste is using all of the natural environment uh, environments and substances that are out there in the best way possible and what is more natural my friends 
than pee. Oh, yes. Urine is 95% water, and on average, a human being produces about 6.3 caps of urine a day. And your pee can generally be used as a window to your overall health because it provides vital information about the functioning of your kidney, heart health, and liver. So I'm sure you must think, how crazy are you, Alna? Why must you talk to us about our urine? We really don't have to have this conversation. Well... Be be well assured that we aren't talking about your health today. We're actually talking about bricks. The Water Quality Lab at the University of Cape Town is using urine, human urine, to grow bricks. So, like the bricks your house is built out of. I had the chance to go interview Dr. Dylan Randall, who manages the water desk at UCT, and talk to him about this new invention that they're working on. It's a world first to do this with human urine, and it's very waste-free and sustainable. Let's go now to Dylan as he explains the process that goes into making the bio brick. We're now in the water quality lab at the University of Cape Town where I'll take you through how we actually grow the biobricks using real urine. So in this container over here we have the so-called stabilized urine. So that's the leftover product if you like after we've removed the first fertilizer, so the calcium phosphate. So this solution now is rich in urea. And then essentially what we do is we add extra calcium because we don't have enough calcium in the urine. We also add food for the bacteria. And then we mix our material together that we want to solidify. So in this case, we're using normal beach sand and gray wacky. Gray wacky, it's kind of like a gravel. We mix it 50-50. So we mix that with the bacteria and we add it into our mold. And then we periodically pump through the urine solution so every three hours it gets pumped through the mold. This side of the brick, you didn't solidify very well, but every other shape you can see it nice and smooth, right angle corners. You can smell it. That's the other thing that people always ask. It doesn't smell at all. And the reason for that is when you allow it to dry at room temperature, all the bad smells basically dissipate. And actually all the main components that are responsible for the smell is actually the ammonium. And that ends up in this bottle over here and not in the actual brick mold. But that's the reason it doesn't smell. Now you may be wondering, why exactly are they using urine? What happens to turn urine into a solid substance? Here it is. The first phase is basically we delay the natural process that would happen in urine. And that's basically the urea hydrolysis. With that process, we essentially keep the urea in solution. And we do this by increasing the pH of the solution by adding calcium hydroxide. And the added benefit of doing this is one, you kill most of the harmful pathogens, and you also produce a solid fertilizer, which is calcium phosphate. So that's the first fertilizer we produce. So during this brick-making process, after the first fertilizer is created, bacteria breaks down the urea and they produce two compounds, carbonate ions and ammonium. But what the researchers were really after here is the calcium and carbonate ions, which are the cement-forming compounds, while the ammonium is extracted to be possible, possibly turned into a nitrogen-based fertilizer. 
this liquid stream is now rich in ammonium. So if you wanted to, for example, if you added an acid to this, so sulfuric acid, you would make ammonium sulfate. But you could also evaporate the water off because it's predominantly water, about 95% water. And then you would make a liquid nitrogen concentrate, essentially. So that work we still have to look into. You may be wondering why there's a need to start looking at other alternatives such as urine to create fertilizer. And you must be thinking, who cares about stinky fertilizer, even though, as Dylan has explained, it isn't actually stinky. Some scientists actually estimate that in the next 100 years, we would have reached peak phosphorus, which means it's a time where we would have reached a rapid decline in the naturally available phosphate rock. And that is something that exists in our urine. So what people don't actually realize is that we're running out of natural phosphate rock. So phosphate rock is used to make phosphoric acid, which is used to make most of our phosphate-based fertilizers. And working in this field, you realize that actually every day you and I pee away this, this key nutrient, this phosphorus. And to give you an idea, our wastewater streams only make up from our homes. Urine makes up 1% of the volume of that stream, but it contains over 50% of the phosphorus and 80% of the nitrogen and 70% of the potassium. And those are three key nutrients needed to make any inorganic fertilizer. And literally, we pee that away every day. So these bricks that they're creating with this very, these very valuable chemicals in them are going to be used to make houses, as you might imagine. But they can also make other things like concrete pavements. And here's a very interesting one, curing cracks in walls reinforce soil using exactly the same process. They use the process to also heal cracks of concrete. They call it self-healing cracks. And you essentially add bacteria to the concrete and when a crack forms, it rains and essentially the little bacteria cement the crack together and you have a sealed crack. So there's many opportunities that this process essentially gives us. While this particular process with human urine is a world first, this kind of work has happened before in the world. US-based researchers also carried out a similar experiment by using synthetic urea to carry out the same process. However, that option is more time-consuming and expensive. So Dylan and his team sampled out the option of using real urine instead. The team in the US, they've been producing biobricks using synthetic urea for actually quite a few years now. And when I first read about this, I thought, one, why are they using synthetic urea? Because synthetic urea is actually a highly energy intensive process to make. You essentially take the nitrogen from the air, lots of energy, and you make synthetic urea. And working in the sanitation field and specifically with urine, I knew that urine has a lot of urea in it. So I was always curious as to why we aren't using the urea in the so-called waste stream to do that. So that's kind of what sparked the interest in this. And then last year, we ran a feasibility study, which was funded by the Water Research Commission, to test this as a concept, basically to see if we could use urine to do pretty much exactly the same process. And then this was the first year where we utilized this 
so-called methodology that we developed using urine to now grow an actual brick. So yes, we, we built on lots of other research. So you would think that the easiest part of this study or this process is getting the urine, right? But actually, acquiring samples of urine has been quite a feat, but a very rewarding one nonetheless. <laughs> Here's Dylan again. The biggest challenge we face is collecting enough urine. So that's the other part of the research and the work that I'm doing is how do we optimize urine collection? How do we actually collect large quantities of urine? So that's ongoing work. This process is part of an integrated process. And what we also developed last year was a fertilizer producing urinal that is also waterless. So being in Cape Town, this was an ideal product. And essentially, it's a standalone unit. It doesn't have to be connected to a sewage line. And what it does is it also produces the fertilizer on site. But it gave us a means to basically collect the quantities of urine that we needed for the experiments. And when we first started, the uptake or the donation of the urine was actually quite slow, as one would imagine. But over time, as people became aware of the research and the work that we were doing, people became more enthusiastic. And now, just from one 25-litre urinal, we can easily fill that in a day. We're actually collecting so much urine that we don't know what to do with it because we're limited in the number of bricks that we can make. Yes, friends, I did have the great honour to walk into the men's bathroom in UCT, at UCT, and it is a pretty funny sight. There's a big sign up saying, we need your pee, and an official letter from the university explaining that there's ethical clearance for this research study. Um, I thought it was pretty funny. So Dylan is saying that we need to look at waste in a general way from a different perspective, and here are more of his what we're trying to do is actually use multiple waste streams. At the moment, we're using sand and other building material, but there's nothing stopping us from using waste building material, for example, or we could even use the tailings from mine dumps and things like that. At the moment, we use lab-grade food, if you'd like, to grow the bacteria, and that's rather expensive, but it's only because we're after the scientific approach. What my student is also looking at using the waste from the brewery industry or from the dairy industry to grow the bacteria. And we're actually showing that the bacteria perform just as well in the so-called waste stream. So that would offset the cost significantly. Obviously, we're using the urine as a waste product. And the only addition that we would be adding is actually the calcium hydroxide. And calcium hydroxide is used extensively in the agricultural sector and it's relatively cheap. So I think going forward, if we just have that mindset of how can we reuse multiple waste streams rather as a resource, I think many opportunities will actually open up. So according to Dylan, using urine, which is, of course, a biological product, can be looked at as another form of promoting a greener and eco-friendlier way of saving the planet for all. So in future, urine could be looked at a means of generating money as well as um, as well as being more sustainable and eco-friendly, not just a waste product. I see a very positive future in this field. I imagine buildings collecting large quantities of urine, producing fertilizer on site, 
transporting the urine to a central resource recovery plant where you also make the biobricks and multiple other fertilizers. So my ideal scenario is to see that these urinals for as one means of urine collection being commercialized and implemented in, for example, malls, high, high congestion areas. For example, it could also be at the University of Cape Town, where we essentially then collecting large quantities of urine, producing the fertilizer, but also then being able to make the biobricks. So I think that's gonna happen in the next few years or so. So I think there's certainly lots of potential so there is this potential. No buildings as yet have been built from these bio bricks. And the fertilizer hasn't been used anywhere because they have just perfected the process. But this is what we can expect going forward. There's been a phenomenal response from various industry partners and players. And I think they're all eager to see where this goes. However, it's still early days. So we still need more testing to optimize the process to show that it can be commercially viable. And for that, we need additional funding. So that's always the limiting factor. Of course, uh, Dylan Randall, Dr. Dylan Randall didn't do this all alone. So he did uh, just shout out or, or thank his team, including Voketo Mukai, Susan Lambert, and other researchers such as Jules Hanaz, Hanzas, apologies, and Jessica Fell. But what a great study. And I think it's one of those great ones because it uses something that is a waste product anyway, that we are spending a lot of money, energy and resources in taking care of that waste product, cleaning the water, you know, all of our sewage. Instead, they are funneling it towards something that can actually build. What a great one. We will be talking more about sustainability in Cape Town, learning a little bit, at, uh, you know, some tips and tricks from the mother city later in the show. But after the break, it's our unscience. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's now Unscience, where we look at something weird and wonderful from the world of research. And today's one is a big one for all of you that like a nice gooey slice of pizza. This this story is making me hungry just thinking about it. It was produced by Gloria Mabuza with music from YouTube and the article is from Science Daily. We'll get into it right now. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. So we are here as always with um, producer Bridget. Give it to us, Bridget. Yes, today we are talking about how to this Italian physicist wrote the perfect pizza. Mm. The perfect pizza equation, that is. That sounds like my kind of mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> Food, right? Imagine being able to make the most perfect pizza in the entire world and making it perfect each and every time. One of the perfect doses of flavors, perfect size and shape every time you make it. I would like that very much. That would be great. There's nothing worse than a bad pizza, actually. I've got to say the worst pizza I've ever had was in Rome. My best pizza was also in Rome. But it made me so sad. Bad pizza anywhere in the world is just terrible. Yeah. But I've got to say, as much as you are making me think about delicious Roman pizza... 
I don't know if it's physically possible to have a mathematical equation that says, you know, it's going to be perfect. I mean, yes, you can measure the flour and the water, but what about the other ingredients? Surely you can't get it perfect all the time, even though I do have to say most pizzas are perfect in my opinion. Oh, well. Apparently, it is possible, and scientists have decided to tackle this very important question. Very important. Yep. So, two Italian physicists who have come up with an equation for the most scientifically made pizza. (laughs) Scientifically made. I hope that means most delicious. So, I mean, I just want some pizza, but I don't want to solve for X. How did they even come up with this? So, these two physicists, Andre Varlamos and Sergio Grasso, sampled margarita as their pizza of choice. Nice and classic. I like it. No pineapple in sight. I like how you're so enthusiastic about the salsa. (laughs) Maybe I'm just really hungry. It's just the wrong time of day to do the story. Sure, I get you. So they watched it being prepped and brick oven baked before their eyes by a seasoned paziolo, which is Italian for dude who makes pizzas. Okay. okay. And in two minutes, the scientists watched Rome's pizza artisans transform doughy discs into golden pies uh, covered with mouth-watering bubbles of cheese. Can I just say, that is very quick to Two minutes. Yeah, like noodles or something. <laughs> yeah, just a lot better. So share. Share your, the secret with us, Bridget. What do we have to do to get this perfect pizza? So they discovered that under ideal, let me let me highlight this, very ideal conditions, a single margarita pizza could be baked to perfection in precisely just under two minutes in a brick oven heated to 330 degrees Celsius. Okay, that's hot. Very. When additional toppings require additional bake time, the pizza is lifted up with a wooden or aluminum spade for an additional 30 seconds. So, or so in order to expose the pizza to just uh, heat irradiation and uh, prevent a toasty bottom. Okay, so this sounds great, but I've got to tell you a secret. I do not have an Italian brick pizza oven in my backyard unfortunately what is if it's just me and my normal electric oven at home and i want the perfect pizza too listen here baby girl listen here (laughs) (laughs) you you do have the secret (laughs) so if you're baking your pie in an electric oven there are chances that your pizza is resting on a metal tray or a baking rack yes the heat conductivity of metal is significantly more powerful or heated than that of a brick so the bottom of your pizza will absorb the heat much more quickly than the rest of the pizza ah so this will bake your dough at 329 degrees for two minutes then turn your pizza into coal oh no so using a thermodynamic equation that they had developed they determined that a pizza cooked in an electric oven could meet similar standards or conditions to a roman uh, brick oven by turning the the heat down by 110 degrees Wow, I'm sure my oven is normally at like 190. So I'm doing it all wrong. I'm not doing it the Roman way. Maybe it's 
Maybe it's just because it's not clay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm not doing it the scientific way, more importantly. <laughs> this has been very, very helpful and also very deliciously entertaining radio content. The crab pizza is the pizza absolutely. That was our unlikely, unusual, and science. Now that we've successfully made everybody hungry, are you hungry now, Bridget? Mm, I can smell the toppings. <laughs> this was a terrible story to do. Let's not do. Let's not do food stories again. At quarter to seven, it's a terrible idea. But after the break, we are talking naked stores, but nobody is taking their clothes off. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome. My name is Elna Schutz. And earlier on the show, we were talking about bio bricks made out of human urine. And you know what? When it comes to sustainability and environmentally conscious living, you and I may not be able or even want to make bricks out of urine. But there are everyday things we can do. I was down in Cape Town for the Biobrick story and I noticed something. In this respect, the mother city really has one up on us when it comes to us Joe Biggers. There are far more signs out and about about bringing your own shopping bag or not using plastic straws, about saving water, of course. And all of that makes sense because of the 1.5 million tons of plastics used in South Africa annually, over half of that is packaging. And a lot of that plastic waste ends up in our oceans, which may be why Capetonians are a little bit more aware of this problem than some people. So what do we do? Alna, I mean, everybody says don't use plastic, don't use plastic, but give us some practical solutions here. Well, yes, one solution is zero waste stores. They're also called naked stores, but nobody takes their clothes off. And there are none of these in Joburg. It's basically a shop, as far as I know. If you do know of a naked store or a nude store, please let us know, but I have not been able to find one. And it's basically a shop where you get everything you want to buy without packaging. And this brings up all kinds of questions, like how does it work? And what about health and safety concerns? So this is not a story based on scientific research, but a little bit more on a practical solution. I went to see what all the fuss is about, about these naked or plastic-free stores. And first up is the first South African store of its kind. It's called Nude Foods in the City Bowl. And I got shown around by the owner, Paul Rubin. So welcome to Nude Foods. As you'll see, the feel and the ambience of our store is very different to your typical grocery or supermarket. There are wafts of aromas in the air, like cardamom pods or the smell of teas or coffees or spices. A lot of people who shop here tell me that they feel a lot more connected to their food shopping this way. As you fill your jar with chia seeds, you can you can see the seeds, smell the seeds, hear the seeds hitting the bottom of the jar. So often I think overly packaged goods kind of disconnect us from the actual product that we're buying. Let me take you around the store. So we have our fresh produce. So all our fruit and vegetables are completely pesticide-free and organic and are all sourced locally within a 10-kilometer radius of the store. We also have 
things on tap like olive oils, vinegar, tahini and honey. Then we have an extensive range of uh, dry goods or pantry goods, everything from dried fruits to nuts, nuts and seeds, spices um, and herbs, as well as superfood powders, gluten-free baking flours, pastas, cereals, grains and legumes. I've got to say, it's a pretty great store. <laughs> I was sad that I didn't uh, that I didn't live close to one because they have all of this great food, but also lots of sustainable products like bamboo toothbrushes and um, something that replaces cling wrap, basically made out of wax. But you might be thinking, how does it work if everything doesn't come with plastic or a container? For that, let's go to another example. It's called Shop Zero, and it functions in a relatively similar way. It's in Woodstock, all vegan, and they also have some beauty products and homeware, much like nude foods. Owner Yannicka Blake explains to me how it works. So we encourage people to bring in their own containers and then take as much or as little as needed. So we weigh the container, they fill it up and we weigh it again and we just subtract the difference so they only pay for the food. If somebody walks past, we do have brown paper bags, but we also have a little sign up there just to help raise awareness that just uh, like the petroleum industry that is very polluting, the paper industry is too. And a paper bag is still a single-use item. So we ask people to come back with those paper bags and reuse them again in order for the carbon footprint to be lower. Otherwise, anything, an old mayonnaise jar, even Tupperware, an old supermarket ready-to-go meal bowl, anything that can be reused instead of only a single-use item. Even though this concept in theory is a revolution, actually it's quite old-fashioned if you think about it. Because back in the day, a lot of stores were like this, bulk stores, or you you would, you know, get your nuts or whatever you need, your rice in your little container in particular quantities that you need. So actually it's it's going back to simpler ways in some senses but it does take planning it's not the convenience of just run into pick and pay and get everything as is you do need to be a little bit prepared but the other really good thing about this is because you can buy relatively small quantities so say you need some nuts or some cinnamon you don't have to buy the quantity that a big chain store is telling you to buy you can just buy what you have money for or what you really need for the this one recipe and that has another great environmental um, effect in terms of less food waste hopefully but you might be asking to get a little bit into more science around this Alna, what about health and safety? While your normal grocery stores, if I can call them that, do have some products like fruit and veg out in the open, those are usually washed before you cook and eat them anyway. What about naked stores where things are in bulk containers? First of all, yes, they have certain procedures, kind of like delis do, and they do fulfill them, but there is a little bit more behind this. Here's Janneke again. We work with a hygiene company that supplies us with SABS approved uh, food grade sanitation spray that we use to sanitize the ladles after each scoop. So, you know, the glass jar that the food is in always stays closed unless if you're busy scooping it out and then we immediately sanitize that ladle, the soup ladle that we use to scoop afterwards. And that's you know, we've got, as you walk into our store, we have a hygiene and tear station. So we've got hand sanitizer there for people to sanitize their hands with. Um, we've got the 
the bucket that has the clean uh, ladles and then the used ones. So we like to to be transparent with our customers so that they can see we try our best to be hygienic and clean in store. Back over at Nude Foods, the operations manager, Stacey Cyrus, happens to be a biologist by training. So I wanted to hear her take on this. Well, look, it, it is a consideration um, and it is something that we do try and um, take into consideration and make sure that we keep things as clean as possible um, and try and prevent contamination in any way. But from a scientific perspective, well, what I kind of think of as a biologist is the fact that actually living a very sanitized lifestyle is the worst thing for your immune system and actually the best thing for children to develop their immune system is to let them play in the mud let them get dirty and expose yourselves the more you expose yourself the stronger you actually are at the end of the day um, it's actually just more natural because our fruit and veg is coming directly from the farm it's been kind of generally washed but there may be some soil there yeah maybe somebody else has touched your cucumber but really you need to wash it anyway because it's got still but maybe a bit of soil on and it's kind of closer to what what's natural so back to the packaging even though it's it's really great to hear that Actually, it's all safe. And the big thing here is that we are saving on wasteful packaging. But you might be thinking, hmm, once it's in the store, it's package free, but it has to get there somehow, right? I would have to say that that's probably the most challenging part of, the, of what we're doing. So initially, when we first launched, we weren't very well known and a lot of the suppliers we contacted weren't, weren't very accommodating or, or forthcoming. They weren't sure who we were. What, what we were requesting from them was quite a big ask. We were asking them to change their systems that have been in place for 10, 20, 30 years and to accommodate something that we were pioneering, something completely new, which may or may not work. So initially it was very difficult. We had a lot of um, suppliers who weren't interested in, in re-looking at packaging or the way their, their products are supplied. But I think as we've grown and we've, be, um, we've become better known and more and more suppliers are, are slowly coming on board. In fact, we're now getting approached by many suppliers who are wanting to supply us um, in, a, in a plastic-free manner. However, I must just say that this is by no means a perfect science so as hard as we strive to ensure that our supply chain is plastic-free or waste-free, every now and again, plastic creeps back in. Somebody gets promoted and is replaced by a colleague who doesn't understand that we're a plastic-free store. And then once again, goods arrive at our store bubble-wrapped or shrink-wrapped, and we have to start that process again. It's an ongoing labor of love i guess you can call it so these kind of stores try to buy as locally as possible to avoid repackaging over and over in the process and they'll often reuse some of the packaging that their products arrive in and resell it as something else like smaller bags or whatever it might be now you may be thinking Alna, even if i do this there may still be plastic that i'm going to you to use not everything is going to be you know arrive um at these kind of stores so first of all of course you can recycle but there's something else stores like nude foods and shop zero actually accept your non-reusable plastics in a very particular way it's called eco bricks 
So it's any bottle stuffed with non-recyclable plastic that gets used to build classrooms, affordable housing, park benches, and it can even be used to build raised garden beds, but there is possibly that risk of the plastic leaching into the soil. So yes, and it needs to be stuffed quite full so that the brick weighs about 500 grams and you're able to stand on it without it denting or like bending in. And we're currently helping WasteEd to collect 2,000 eco-bricks to build an outdoor classroom with. So we know there are many scientists out there working on better sustainable solutions to our waste problem. But here is one really practical way of addressing this that with a little bit of effort can be incorporated into your normal life and make a change. So both Paul and Janneke started their stores because they were really frustrated with the way things are. And as consumers, that puts a little bit of that, a little bit of that frustration is also what we need in a good way. So I know that you might be thinking that in Joburg or Pretoria or wherever you you are there may not be a naked or plastic free store but you know what there are probably bulk options around you i know a lot of food grocers even the big chains or markets have a lot of things that they are giving you by weight and maybe if you go and you ask them whether you can bring your own containers instead of using the the single-use plastics they're offering you that could be one way of doing it and learning from our cape town friends a little bit about sustainability and that is what we've been talking about today on the science inside this is the science inside with elna it is indeed, it has been the science side with myself, Elna Schutz, and today's show, Sustainability, Waste-Free Living, in two very different ways. The first being human urine turned into biobricks, a very cool story from UCT, and then looking at how the mother city does sustainable living through nude, naked, or plastic-free stores, whatever whatever term floats your boat very cool from the big scientific ideas to something very simple and practical that you can do to live a little bit more sustainably a thank you to all of our guests featured on the show today including dylan randall paul rubin stacy cyrus and yannicka blake and our team behind the scenes as always is bridget lepera and Gloria mabuza on today's show take by kutlana sahame if you've missed any of our conversation today or want to share it with your friends you can do so and i encourage you to do so the podcast is on itunes as the science inside as well as our website here it is that's that's wits.journalism.coza forward slash science. Social media, that is where we are, of course. Facebook and Twitter as Val FM. You can find us on all those platforms. Listen to our past shows, including this one. My name is Alna Schutz. And as always, The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. And I can't wait to be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OFF 88.1.
Science Inside Podcast.